You're listening to West of Center. I'm Jason Albert. Today on West of Center, it's the Angle of Repose episode, which is not only the title of a great novel by Wallace Stegner, you should definitely go read it, but it's this elegant concept. On a sloping or inclined surface, it's the maximum angle at which an object, like a grain of sand or a snowflake, can rest on that slope without sliding down. And as skiers, we can change the angle of repose with often grim consequences, which we'll get to in a bit. But first, this episode is broken into three parts. Part one, it's about a snow scientist's good work. Part two brings us face-to-face with bad decisions. And part three, this one's quick. Part three celebrates the best of send-offs when we head into the hills and need to make those keen decisions. There's something magical about snowfall. Even though we've all heard growing up that no two flakes are alike, there happens to be a taxonomy of sorts describing types of flakes. Solid columns, sheaths, scrolls on plates, triangular forms, forms, hexagonal plates, hollow columns, cups, 12 branch stars, radiating dendrites, simple stars, skeletal forms, grapple. But most of us were interested in how many inches have fallen, the total accumulation. So it's good to know there's this guy out there who is actually more interested in each individual snowflake as it tumbles through the air at the moment before it hits the ground. If you've barely got your pulse on ski culture, you'll notice one thing hasn't changed for eons. People still want to ski powder, and I think they'll always want to ski powder. And uh, the problem with um, skiing powder avalanche-wise, is that the best snow conditions are at the height of instability. Instability is another word Ned Bear uses for likelihood to avalanche. I rung Bear up on Skype. He's a snow scientist based in Mammoth, California. And just to set this straight, he's not a ski area employee. He works for a joint project set up by Krell, or the Cold Regions Research and Engineering Laboratory and UC Santa Barbara. He's kind of like many of us at one time. He took his turn swapping the cap and gown for ski planks and poles. Yeah, right out of college, I started working actually as a ski patroller in Mammoth, much to my parents' chagrin. Eventually, Bear's interest turned to snow science, particularly avalanches. So after his global search for turns and a seasonal gig at Mammoth, he earned a PhD. Here's what Bear found during his dissertation work. Listen up, because this gets a bit technical. What I found when I was doing my dissertation work um, is that a lot of the avalanches in Mammoth were failing in the storm layers, right? So they weren't even failing at the old snow and new snow interface. They're actually failing up in that new snow layer. And what was going on was that if you really looked carefully at that layer, we'd find a lot of a certain type of snow crystal in there. And specifically, those failure layers were, were composed of relatively rime-free crystals and that were either plates, so they look sort of like uh, little hexagonal bolt heads, or unrhymed stellars, uh, which are the classic branching snowflake. Rime is supercooled water, and as snowflakes fall, they can collide with rime. If you've ever seen grapple, that's on one end of the spectrum. It's 100% rime. So Bear wanted a way to look at falling snowflakes to help with his predictions about snowflake type and avalanches. But getting this detailed data is tough. 
So I think a tool that would help give us a better idea of the storm stratigraphy would be extremely useful because um, right now there's no way to check it automatically. I mean, the only way to check in storm uh, stratigraphy is to go out there and manually dig uh, and look at what's accumulated. And that is really difficult and and in some places impractical and, and dangerous. To support Bayer's avalanche research, the Cold Regions Research and Engineering Lab secured funding for that tool, a state-of-the-art high-speed camera system. Its resolution is so powerful, it can capture individual rhyme droplets. Now Bayer examines real-time snowflake composition, and here's the cool thing. We're trying to identify these failure layers as they fall. The camera system uploads images of falling snowflakes. Bayer also knows the time series throughout the storm. That makes it easier for him to make predictions like this. You know, whether or not we're, we're going to have uh, layering that is conducive to avalanching or not. Bayer looks at details like flake size and shape, things like amount of rhyming. Remember, Bayer is on the lookout for unrhymed or plate-like crystals. Evidence shows they can form a weak layer that may be more likely to slide. Avalanche prediction is far more complicated than singling out only these variables. But it's a starting point to better understand storm snow avalanches. Those are avalanches where the failure layer forms during the storm. That's a critical time because sometimes it seems we can't help ourselves. And then you have this um, need to go ski that new snow, um, which, which doesn't seem to be going away. Although Bear's research is one piece of the avalanche avoidance puzzle, he's aiming to understand which snowflakes make a storm snow dangerous or safe for skiing. And that's a sweet gift. As for Bear's preferred ski terrain, here's what he had to say. You know, I'm, I'm only 33, but I'm, uh, I kind of ski like one of those guys you see in the, the steamboat commercials, you know, just skiing through the kind of low angle glades and stuff like that. And, you know, I'm, I'm totally happy with that. Since it's pretty clear backcountry and side country skiing are more mainstream, it's nice to know people like Ned Bear are spending their considerable mental gifts on helping us help ourselves. But sometimes the draw of new snow, the long-awaited storm cycle, it's just too tempting for some. And that's what we'll hear about in part two. Imagine this. It's a few years back at Mount Baker Ski Area, part of a postcard perfect spawn of mountains gulping moisture off the Pacific. It's late March, and snow's been falling for days. We got 150 inches of snow in two weeks. We knew that it was like moderate to considerable avalanche danger, because I'd been riding for the past two weeks straight and been up there every day, and like got to see all of the snow cycles come in. Andrew Eckert's a bold 23, who's riding the lifts with his longtime friend, Reed McIntyre. They spy hemispheres from chair six. From chair six, you're across this big, it's called the canyon. And then there's hemispheres up here, which is like this big bulbous peak that's hike access from the other side, chair eight. Down below hemispheres is this section of cliff bands, small cliff bands, and then little narrow chutes and flutes that come down into this canyon. And that's called elf chutes. After a full ski season of steep runs, Elf Chutes becomes just another skiable, out-of-bounds line with acceptable risks. 
Before skiing offshoots in the past, Eckerd had caused small slides by ski cutting, a precaution he'd regularly used to test the chute's stability. And earlier that ski season, a friend survived a sickening slide here by clinging to a tree. Reed and Andrew have earned basic avalanche certifications and maintain wilderness first responder credentials. So while they're rotting up the lifts, they're carrying avalanche transceivers, shovels, probe poles, avalongs, and an extra dose of moxie. And so we looked across the canyon and I was like, Reed, we need to go get that thing. Like nobody is skied elf shoots. We need to go get this pal, like right now. It's easier than ever to access the unpredictable. Andrew and Reed, along with two friends on snowboards, zip up a few lifts, shuffle through the out-of-bounds gate. There, an updated sign reads, avalanche danger considerable. They sweat out the remaining 30-minute approach. But ski patrollers understand today's amped lift access skier. When it dumps, ski patrol blasts elf shoots with a howitzer shell to help control for avalanches. And that morning, the howitzer had set it off and we didn't actually look for a bomb hole because on the panel that you cut, there's normally a bomb hole from the howitzer that shoots across the canyon in the morning. And that was totally full. Filled with a fresh 18 inches of snow that's piled on another day-old 18-inch layer. Big snow is common here. So you can bet avalanche forecasters closely monitor storms slamming in from the Pacific. Each evening at six, the Northwest Weather and Avalanche Center releases a detailed avalanche forecast. The forecast for March 20th, the day Andrew scouts L shoots, actually comes out the day before, the evening of March 19th. One of the first things you'll notice on these forecasts is a circle called a danger rose. It's marked with north, east, south, and west, and elevation rings between 3,000 and 7,000 feet. The forecast says you can visualize the danger rose as a conical mountain, like you're looking down on the summit and you can see all the mountain sides. The danger rose for the day these guys are skiing is colored solid red, indicating all aspects have an avalanche danger in effect. Although he's not read the forecast, Andrew senses this as he scans the unskied slopes. Perched atop elf shoots, he mentions the snow seems funky. And so there's like a tremendous amount of wind loading, a tremendous amount of snow, and and in retrospect, that's something that, you know, we should have noticed and didn't. The warning signs are clear. Bottomless fresh snow, wind loading, and powdery crystals teetering on the angle of repose. All the natural ingredients for big uncertainty. But the allure of arcing bottomless turns draws them in. And so I ski cut, you know, laid a good turn into it, like pushed down right at the apex and didn't get any results, didn't get anything to propagate. And so I actually took out my Avalon at that point and I was like, Reed, it's good to go, bud. I'm skiing. And then I took off and I skied down and I was still kind of worried about slough. And so I took a big left turn and I looked behind me and I didn't see anything go. And then I took a big right turn and then I looked behind me and I saw pretty much everything below the slope where Reed was standing, which is like 40 feet below Reed at a 30 degree pitch, mm, 40 degree pitch. 
yeah, brick got like 18 inches deep and 40 feet across, and I was square in the middle of it. It's now a fight or flight moment. And so I tried to head for the trees, couldn't make it to the trees, and so my last ditch ever, it was just trying to get my avalon back into my mouth. And I just couldn't, because I kept getting forced backward, and I wasn't able to put it in, even though I kept trying and trying. The last thing Eckert remembers is... Having the thought that I had made a really grave mistake and it was going to be a real shitty way to die. So Reed saw me take that last right hand turn and then he saw a plume of smoke and I just kind of disappeared. Just like the moment the slope fell out from his skis, the avalanche stalls out. The snow sets up like cement. Up above, Reed and the other two skiers switch their transceivers into search mode. And so he got down to pretty much like right where it had triggered, turned on his beacon to search, and looked down the slope. And as soon as he sort of lined up from left to right where my signal was, he he claims he saw my hand and my glove like pop up down in the canyon. Reed navigates blocks of snow and a debris field. He zeroes in on Andrew's avalanche beacon signal. It's then frantic digging. And I was like blue in the face, blue in the lips. Within minutes, they alert two friends, both off-duty ski patrollers. With their help, they carve out a small crater. Submerged in the center, a crumpled but alert skier, able to self-assess his dismal situation. I don't remember anything until Reed's head over my head and they started asking me about my legs and immediately I yelled that my femur was broken when they tried to touch my right leg and then they touched my left leg and I was like screamed this time and was like no my tib fib is broken too I have two broken legs I need an evac out of here now um you know I'm Andrew Record. this is Elf Shoots today is March 20th you're Ben Williamson, you're Eric Nord, you're Reed McIntyre. Like, let's get the fuck out of here now. A complex evacuation ensues. It seems the tipping point towards Andrew's survival rests on the randomness of luck and some capable friends. Andrew admits his past experiences, often sloppy experiences, bred complacency. So what he assessed as possible simply wasn't. Maybe it's a young person's dilemma. He expected that steep shoot powder experience and expected it right then and there. The evac culminates with a hospital bed and pain reliever cocktail, compliments of Seattle's Harborview Hospital, where it also turns out some metal hardware becomes a part of Andrew's anatomy. He endures six hours of leg surgery. There's three days in ICU, and then he's released for a two and a half month rehab stint in a Bellingham nursing home. He's the most junior resident by about 60 years. This soon becomes the story of double-time physical therapy sessions in a place most go to live out their lives. Andrew befriends an old Russian woman there named Claudia, who just may be the sage we could all use standing on our shoulders when it's decision time. Claudia, my old friend from Russia, who's super cool. I had to tell her like every week what happened to me. Like, you know, we were good friends, but she would just forget. And I was like, how, how does you break your legs again? I was like, oh, avalanche, Claudia. And she, oh my God, you young kids. Like, and she would just go off. She was like, you don't know the value of your life. Like, you know, 
love your family, love your friends, don't do stupid shit. Essentially, it was the gist of like what she told me pretty much every day. The decisions we make in the field so we can ski along sensibly are often supported by those with deeper experience. In part three, we'll learn sometimes that information, it's cosmic in nature. So if you're up at dawn in Crested Butte, on a second cup and tuned into community radio station KBUT, that's KBUT, you might be dialed into the morning avalanche report. And here for you, the Avalanche Center. Good morning. Hey, good morning. This is the Crested Avalanche Center's weather and avalanche report for Friday, March 25th. That's an older avalanche report there, airing before the start of the Grand Traverse, a grueling 40-mile backcountry ski race from Crested Butte to Aspen. layer wind flab will be present today and will continue to build throughout the day. All right, thank you very much. Thank you, and good luck to all the Grand Traverse races. The race itself is classic. It celebrates the grueling, blister-inducing distance old-time postman skied to connect isolated mining towns. And just pulling off a race like this takes a collective community effort, let alone an army of avalanche experts. Just before the midnight start, racers have their avalanche beacons checked. Then they head outside, knock snow from their boots, step into their bindings. Huddled like cattle in a corral, Condensed breath hovers in the air as about 200 skiers get last-minute instructions. And then there's this from Preacher Tim. Um, Preacher Tim is here. He's going to give the blessing. Everybody pay attention. It's a good one. All right. Here's a bit about that blessing. I entered a few early editions of the Grand Traverse. What I recall most vividly from those days was a wiry guy that I thought was a beat-error poet masquerading as a deity in the holy city of ski bums. He sported what looked like a thrift shop reverence kit draped over long johns. And before the race start, he greeted anxious racers with a glowing prayer. I found out years later that that wintertime holy man wasn't is the real deal. He's Reverend Tim Clark, officially ordained and the shepherd, so to speak, at a local Crested Butte church. The Grand Traverse may now be a carbon fiber and gram counting affair, but it's still classic and homegrown. And Preacher Tim, he still sends off the seekers and the racers. And here's why I'm including all this. At the start of every ski season, I often think of Tim Clark's blessings, how he has this ability to ground us for a moment, makes us think about the gift and joy of traveling again and again through a thin air dreamland. In 2012, the race left smack dab from the base of Mount Crested Butte. It's a Nordic Mardi Gras scene. Music, funky costumes, libations, and plenty of rando racing lycra. Are you guys ready for a little dose of the Holy Ghost? Woo! Be careful out there. Hearken ye Nordic warriors to this blessing now in verse. Gird up thy loins and prepare for the worst. For the quest that you share will require all your heart. So be true to your partner. Race as one from the start. May the Almighty who coaxed up these peaks from the veils bless thy skins thy skis and poles, 
keeping thy tips before thy tails. Be thou crust-busting gladiator or corn-carving artiste. May thy climbs reward ye with squeals down each piste. And as ye scramble over creeks, the friends hunt and barnard hunt. When anyone heads into the backcountry, the outcome often isn't predetermined. Assuming risk, it's deeply personal. Yet having a beautiful send-off, the likes of what Tim Clark provides, may remind us why we're alone for the ride. And Andrew Eckert, the avalanche skier, can make us think about that need for risk and about the choices in our control, and how sometimes the seductive yet ephemeral sensation of knee-deep snow blinds us. Like how many thousands of dollars did I spend? And like how much of my life that I organize around this one activity? And it just starts to seem kind of crazy. You're like, why are all these people just as crazy as I am? Why do you think that? Because you feel like God when you're skiing and like you trigger avalanches and you get out of them and you ski snow that's like up to your nipples and you're on a 50 degree face, like, you know, going 60 miles an hour like coming out of some chute, going straight as fast as you possibly can, like about to lift off, like you feel like God, kind of. Anything else? <laughs> Solid columns, sheaths, scrolls on plates, triangular, triangular forms, hexagonal plates, hollow columns, cups, 12 branch stars, radiating dendrites, simple stars, Skeletal forms. Grapple. I'd love your feedback from episode two. You can email me at info at westofcenter.org. You can subscribe to West of Center in iTunes. You can find us by searching for West of Center in iTunes podcast. When you're there, please leave a comment and a rating. In the iTunes universe, that can help things out. And I'll post some cool snowflake photos and a link to snowflake taxonomy at westofcenter.org. And you'll find some backstory about episode two there as well. And you can also send West of Center interesting sounds. Once you've got your audio, just use the send me your sounds link on the website. And thanks for listening. Oh, and just one more thing. Getting those kids to read the snowflake shapes wasn't so easy. Okay, uh, this is Amian. And do you want actually, do you want to introduce yourself? No, you you did it. Yeah, I guess so. Okay.